and to proclaim the word of God. So let's do uh, what is uh, fit for us to do and ask once again for God's help. Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for you are a great and merciful God. We ask now that you would send your spirit, Lord, that we will be hearers of your of your holy word, Lord. We ask that you would strengthen the one who delivers the word that would be uh, unto your honor and edification of the church. Lord, let Christ be glorified. Come now, send your spirit. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at somewhat uh, of a practical passage for each one of us. We're going to dive into a portion of scripture that is, uh, I believe you'll see, is uh, surprisingly uh, applicable to our circumstances. And um, the author of Ecclesiastes, now that's perhaps uh, Solomon, is believed to be Solomon, uh, says in the beginning chapter, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. And today we'll see how this, this parcel, this, this snippet of wisdom is indeed true as we are faced with uh, the skeptic, the materialistic philosophies against which Paul had to deal with in Athens. Now these system of beliefs that we'll encounter, these worldviews, now worldview is just a a system of belief by which you understand and you see the world, Uh, we'll see how these system of beliefs are in great measure predominant philosophies even of our days. Christianity on the other hand is uh, a complete worldview in and of itself. Every Christian uh, operates or at least every Christian should operate on a Christian worldview. Uh, you should understand and see and engage the world based on the Christian worldview. So anytime that there is a clash of worldviews, anytime that particularly the Christian worldview engages with an unbelieving worldview, um, you step in the realm of apologetics. Okay, apologetics. Now apologetics is somehow out of, of a fancy word, but it simply means the defense of the faith, the defense of the Christian faith. So let's say when you are at the office or when you are at a family gathering or just at the grocery store at the park and you find yourself in a conversation where you are defending, you're explaining, you're vindicating the Christian faith, you are engaging in apologetics. Now pretty much everybody agrees that apologetics is a biblical practice. Okay, the proof text, the, the command is found in a classic text, 1 Peter 3.15. I'll read it for you. There we read, uh, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this is a classic proof text that makes uh, apologetics um, a biblical mandate. So in the whole spectrum of of Christendom, of Christian thinking, everybody agrees that apologetics is a biblical mandate. So, uh, brothers and sisters, we ought to engage in apologetics. But the thing that people disagree on is uh, how to engage in this practice, how to do apologetics, how do we properly defend our faith? 
And I submit to you that just like in everything else regarding our faith, uh, we have to find our clues, we have to find our directives in the manual that God has given us. This is the manual, the Bible. So uh, I believe that you have received my email yesterday. I hope you have read it. And I encourage you all to read chapter 17 in the book of Acts in its entirety. I hope that you read the chapter, you have an idea. This chapter is uh, pretty much a blueprint for how to engage with unbelievers. A blueprint of of practical practical apologetics. And Paul is is the architect, let's say. Paul is the one who is drawing out this blueprint. And sometimes when I read, just in my my personal readings, when I go through the chapter 17 of Acts, I kind of see in some ways uh, Balboa Park. Uh, many of you have been there, you know what I'm talking about, you can, you can see that Balboa Park on, a, on any Saturday afternoon is a little bit of a cluster of worldviews. On a good day you have, you have the, well it's a good day if you have the Christians, so you have the Christians, there is the Muslims, you have the Jehovah Witness, uh, you have the Atheist of course, you have uh, um, sometimes there is the 12 tribes cult, there is, um, you have the, the Roman Catholics, the Seventh Day Adventist, and I can go on, and I'm not exaggerating, they're all there. So in the same way, Paul, doing, this is doing his second missionary journey, he's traveling down, um, he's not traveling down El Prado Street, he's traveling down from Macedonia to Achaia and encounters a good number of uh, groups of unbelievers. Now, like I said, if you have read the chapter, you recall that the first group he meets in Thessalonica are Jews. He meets a group of Jews um, in a synagogue. And in verse 2, we read, And and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on on, uh, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So in his first encounter, Paul deals with a group of people that, although they were not believers in Jesus Christ, yet they held the Scriptures in uh, in honor. They revered the Bible. They uh, believed it to be authoritative and inspired. So his apologetics, the apologetics he uses in this case, is centered on reasoning from the scriptures. He explains, he proves the messianic claims of Christ directly from the word of God. Then later on in the chapter, he goes, he moves down to Achaia and he's in Berea. And there again, he meets a group of Jews and also they held the scripture highly. They revered the scripture. They considered them authoritative. And a matter of fact, we are told that they are even a more noble group than the Jews in Thessalonica. The first group of Jews doesn't have the best reaction to Paul's explaining um, the Messianic claims. But this group is more noble. And we read that as Paul preaches the gospel, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So again, Paul we see that he uses uh, scriptures. He's, he's, that's his focus in his defense of the faith, even in this case. So I think we can draw already a first uh, a quick application for ourselves. This might be the, the quickest, uh, the, the, the earliest application you hear at Grace Bible Church. Uh, usually those are kept, kept for last, but uh, it's just it's so obvious and we can just mention it. So when, we, when defending the faith, when explaining, when engaging an unbelieving worldview that um, rejects Christ... And the, the, in the sense that we hold Christ to be the only Savior, 
by faith in his work, uh, but this worldview still reveres the Bible. For example, the Jehovah Witness, for example, the, for example, the, the Roman Catholics, when engaging these worldviews, um, our apologetics ought to be based on the Word of God. Just like Paul, we want to reason with them from the Scriptures. Next Saturday morning, when someone knocks on your door, don't go hide in your bathroom and turn off all the lights. Just open and reason with them from the Scriptures. And our hope is that the Spirit of God will convict them of their error. Obviously, this is a work of God. Convict them of their error and, and lift the veil from their eyes so that they might see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we continue in the chapter, we see that uh, Paul gets to a third encounter uh, in chapter 17. And this is our focus for today. He's the third group he encounters. So let's read it together. I'll be reading verses 16 to 34, although our text is a little shorter than that. Uh, Our text is actually verse 22 to 34, but I'll be reading a little um, bit more context. Now follow along. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreigner divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And he took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And this is our text for today. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown or in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we are not to think that divine beings like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Aeropagite and a woman named Damaris and others 
with them. Amen. So as we read, Paul enters Athens. You know, Athens was the cultural, it was the artistic, it was the intellectual epicenter of antiquity. Uh, ancient Athens has been referred to as the mother of arts, has been called the source of eloquence. Uh, pretty much the, the, all of the greatest philosophical minds um, of history were from there or around there. By many, it was considered a fascinating, intriguing, a very interesting place. But the Apostle Paul's reaction, as we read, is just a little different. He is provoked in his spirit. He's, he's deeply troubled. He's even stirred up to anger as, as he witnessed the display of rampant idolatry throughout the city. And, you know, you might relate to Paul in this case, in a sense that the Christian mind works differently than the worldly mind. An unregenerate mind and a regenerate mind are just on two different spectrums. They think differently. How many times you've heard maybe your, your coworkers just raving about a, a new movie. That, that movie's great. Or a TV show. You, you gotta watch that TV show. It's awesome. Or that new book that just came out. Everybody's reading it. It's alright. You give it a try. You watch the movie or you, know, you pick up the book. And you are provoked in your spirit. It is a, it is a vile content. It is stirring you up even to anger for its content. So in the same way, we can relate Paul as he's walking about this great city of Athens, his spirit is provoked. Now this city was indeed full of idols and temples, so much so that Petronius, an ancient writer, once jokingly said that it was easier to find a god than a man there. It was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. But Paul, he's provoked in his spirit, but he doesn't curl up in a ball and hides in a corner waiting for his friends to get there. No, he boldly begins to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And pretty much anywhere he can. He even goes to the marketplace and he addresses anybody that's there and it can hear him. And at this point, Luke, the author of, uh, the writer of Acts, tells us that there is two groups of philosophers that uh, they hear his message, they're exposed to his preaching. The Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, now, pay attention to what these two groups believed, because I found, I found this as I was preparing the sermon. This is striking. This is very fascinating because, um, Paul found himself in a very similar intellectual environment, a climate as we live in now. Why? The Epicureans were the following teachings of Epicurus. You probably would have guessed that. They believed that this life is all there is. They believe that this life is all there is. And because of that, they believe that the goal of his life is pleasure. is pursuing whatever feels good. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Now, their motto was pretty much this. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Now, they also, they've given up the idea of ultimate truth. They've given up the idea that ultimate, absolute truth can never be reached by men. Does that sound familiar to any of you? So therefore, they just, they just pursued what was satisfactory to their flesh. Just a little bit like the atheist philosophy of our day. The second group, the Stoics, they followed the teachings of, of Zeno. This was a man from uh, Cyprus. So this was a man from the general area of Paul. So Paul was, was probably very familiar with their teachings. And these, these people were pantheists. Now, pantheists were those who believed that pretty much um, there is a, a whole, uh, everything is God, right? That everything that surrounds us is divine. 
Okay, even there, it should steer in, in you some, uh, is there some resemblance to some of the philosophy that are pervasive today, especially in California? They also gave up the idea of pursuing higher knowledge, higher truth. That is not reachable for men. Okay? And they, um, and they believed that basically uh, everything was mechanically predetermined. Okay, they, they believe that this all God would bring things about mechanically. But if you compare it a little bit with the atheistic philosophies of our day, they do believe that everything sort of happens mechanically through, through a process that can't be escaped. Uh, almost a naturalistic process that can't be escaped. So according to the Stoics, the goal and secret of life and happiness was to basically stoically go through these events to chin up, just plow through whatever life brings your way, good or bad. Now the late R.C. Sproul commenting on these two philosophies in Athens uh, says this, such thinking is pervasive today. People are saying that all anyone can really know is the here and now. This is the, the way the vast majority of people in America live their lives. They never think about the ultimate reality or the ultimate truth. They do not think about the meaning of their existence. They they think only about today and tomorrow and how they feel right now. So these two groups pretty much gave up on ultimate truth. Yet in the midst of their streets, there was a man who was preaching the ultimate, the, the authoritative truth to them. This man was preaching them the true meaning of life. This man had the true antidote to death. Yeah, how did they call him? In verse 18, we read that they called him a babbler. They called him a babbler. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. That's kind of a strange insult. A babbler was a seed picker. was basically a, um, a cheap philosopher. Uh, in, a, in a way, a preacher of foolish ideas. Can you see any of these similarities? Have you ever been called a fool for preaching the truth of God to the people around you? Can you relate to Paul in this situation? But the Athenians, we're told also, uh, if, if anything, just out of curiosity, they bring Paul to the Areopagus to hear these teachings that he has in just a little bit more of a, of a formal setting. Now, the Areopagus uh, also was called Mars Hill that, by the Romans. The Areopagus was a place in town that was dedicated to debates and to trials. It was a place of authority in religious and moral matters. So Paul there, he addresses these, these Gentile unbelievers in Athens. And his speech is really uh, the text of our interest today. So we're going to be working through this text just to simplify uh, in three different parts. I divide it in three parts. Now, John Calvin divides in his commentary in five parts. That would have made a little too long of a sermon for us. So I decided to do three parts. Uh, the first one is verses 22 to 23. And I titled it, The Ignorance of the Unbeliever. The Ignorance of the Unbeliever. This is how Paul does apologetics uh, with these particular philosophies. And uh, the first part also names, gives a title to the sermon, which is the ignorance of unbelief. Now, verses 22 and 23. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in any way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship, you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, some commentaries that I've read in my preparation mistakenly believe that Paul is beginning uh, his speech, his address to them with a commendation to the Athenian men. He's basically 
praising them for their religiosity. That he's commending them for being so pious. I think that nothing is further from the truth. Um, uh, first of all, we know from extra biblical history that it was it was forbidden to flatter the members of the Areopagus. It was it was at least frowned upon to just praise them openly um, in the way that they some commentaries say that Paul was doing. But furthermore, we have to remember that this is Paul we're talking about. It is unlike Paul to be praising a group of people for basically their ignorant idolatry for their the blatant ignorance of their worship this is the same paul who writes to the ephesians about the gentiles they walk in the vanity of their minds being darkened in understanding because of their ignorance because of the hardens their hardened hearts is the same paul who writes to the corinthians that the wisdom of the world is foolish is the same paul that as we read in romans says that unbelievers are vain in their reasonings uh, that um, they profess to be wise, but they became fools. No, so Paul is not praising uh, these men. Um, Paul begins his speech with a respectful indictment. Paul is beginning his address with respectfully exposing not their piousness, not their religiosity, but their ignorant superstition. Now the word, the word uh, religious, you are very religious, that very word can actually be translated as superstitious. I've noticed that you are very superstitious. Uh, so, so Paul is exposing the inconsistency of their worldview. Why do I say that? He's exposing the inconsistency of their worldview. Do you remember, we've read it, do you remember why these philosophers basically dragged Paul into the Areopagus in the first place? We can look at it again, verse 19 and 20. It says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. They wanted to know. They wanted to know. This is, these are men of knowledge. They wanted to know his teachings. These are men of knowledge. At least they, they prize themselves to be men of knowledge. Yet Paul gently reminds them that they admittedly worship what they don't know. They have an altar to an unknown God. You see, brothers, human beings are intrinsically religious beings. I've never seen a monkey or a lion or an elephant or worship. I don't know if you have. You know, if Jason would set up maybe cameras all over his house, uh, I don't think he would catch Brooklyn's puppy somehow worshiping one day or if i would follow around my cat henry and some of you had the pleasure to meet henry um if i would follow him around all day around the house although he doesn't move much from the couch uh, i wouldn't spot him at some point you know bowing down and praying no human beings are the only one who worship everywhere and in every age human beings have worshiped someone or something And it's because we have been created that way. We have been created to worship. We have an innate desire and need to worship. You see, the essence of idolatry is simply the substitution of the object of worship from the creator to a creature or or something resembling a creature. A a wise man uh, said once, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing, but worships everything. When man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing. He worships everything. 
So these men, these people in Athens, in their blind superstition, they have set up an altar to an unknown God. Paul is bringing up that the religiosity is without knowledge. It's misdirected, ignorant worship. And this in a city, this is a city known for eloquence, known for knowledge, known for philosophy. Yeah, admittedly, they are ignorant to the deepest, the most important of subjects. So Paul is exposing the inconsistency of their worldview, which is marked by ignorant um, superstition. Now, how can, how can this be done by you and I? How can we, in our conversations with unbelievers, how can we, in our, in our, just in our daily encounters or weekly encounters with people, how can we expose the ignorance of the worldviews, um, unbelieving worldviews around us? I think the best way to do it is just like Paul did, just by paying attention. Just by paying attention. Now look at verse 23. Uh, There we read, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Now this doesn't mean that that Paul, just like an Italian Italian, uh, tourist, was just walking around, just... You know, strolling around the city with a nice camera, taking a selfie or posting on your Snapchat, just just chilling around Athens. No, the actual word translated observed in the ESV in the original means to look attentively, to consider well, to observe accurately. So Paul was a little bit of a Sherlock Holmes. He was going around accurately looking at their objects of worship in order to find something that he could use then in his proclamation of the gospel. So we need to be those who pay attention. We need to be those who, who, who listen, who listen well when people talk to us. We need to be those who observe accurately so that we can use later on things that we have gathered, we have collected when we pay attention. And I want to give you just a couple of practical examples so you know what I'm talking about here. What to look for. You know, for example, you're at the office, you know, uh, you, you, have a, you have a guy at the office that you have a good relationship with, and he's always showing you the, picture of us, the pictures of his, his kids. He has two beautiful kids, and he loves them. He's always showing you, look how awesome they are, I love these kids. And then one day, you, you guys doing lunch, lunch break, you get in a conversation, and uh, you are trying to uh, get to the gospel, you bring up uh, religion, and he's like, hey, 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 hold it right there, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any of that stuff, I'm an atheist. If you've paid attention, if you remember, if you were careful, you can bring back the fact that in an atheistic worldview, where we're just matter emotion, we're just atoms banging, that we're just developed uh, you know, bacteria, there's not such thing as sincere love. Those are just chemical, chemical reactions within, uh, you know, within a piece of, of uh, muscle, within, uh, you know, within our brains. Really, between love and hate, there is no difference. It's just chemical reactions. So you can gently, and let me stress this, gently. We read First uh, Peter 3.15. It says, do it with gentleness and respect. Okay, whenever we do this, we have to be doing it with gentleness and respect. Yeah, you can bring up, uh, yet with, you know, with um, honesty, that in an atheistic worldview, there is no such thing as a sincere love. And I'm not saying the atheists don't love their children. I'm saying that precisely because they love their children, it is an inconsistency in their worldview. For example, say you're on a plane and you know you're uh, you're sitting next to a stranger, and on planes they seem never to want to sit you next to your wife or your friends. They're always next to a stranger, and uh, but this person at least it gives you opportunity to share the gospel. This person is reading a newspaper, and you see when you get on the plane that this person is unpleased. It's almost angered by an article about a child molester, let's say, and uh, and this person expresses that. 
And then later on in the flight, two hours after, you get in a conversation about how uh, there is going to be a day where a righteous God will judge the world according to his standard of morality. And this person goes, hold it high right there. I don't believe that there is a standard of morality. I don't believe that there is a God who says what is right and wrong. I think everybody makes up their own morality. Everybody decides what's right and wrong. If you've paid attention, if you were careful, like Paul was in Athens, you can bring up, wait a minute, I thought you were outraged at the child molester. So these things expose the inconsistency in unbelieving worldviews. I do want to remind you again, do it with gentleness and respect. Don't go around breaking and destroying people's worldviews just for the sake of it. Okay. Now let's move to the second point of the, Paul's address. So we've seen that initially he brings up the inconsistency of this philosopher's worldview. The second part is the proclamation of the biblical God. The proclamation of the biblical God. This is verses 24 to 26. So Paul uses their admitted lack of knowledge as a point of contact. He uses it almost as a springboard to then proclaim the true God. So it is important for us to notice that although Paul is addressing Gentiles, now these people have, uh, have no biblical knowledge and nor, they revere the scriptures like the Jews in, you know, earlier in the, in the chapter. Uh, he's not ditching the Bible altogether. On the contrary, his proclamation is steeped in biblical truth, even biblical terminology. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what evidentialism is. Evidentialism is a popular method of apologetics nowadays. Um, evidentialism basically seeks to bring up uh, a bunch of evidence to an unbeliever in order to convince them of the truths of the scripture. Okay. Now, I believe that this method is inappropriate. It's unbiblical. It's not... Um, it is not what the Bible, the examples in the Bible command us to do. The, the real reason is because this is bringing up just a bunch of evidence to an unbeliever's mind in, in hope that you would, you would convince them of the truth of scriptures. But by doing so, you're basically submitting all of these things about the scriptures to the reason of the unbeliever, elevating an unbeliever almost to a, the place of judge and jury. You make the decision. I'm just giving you all of these reasons and you make the decision if this is right or wrong for you. Now, first of all, this undermines the biblical truth of total depravity, of the fact that unbelievers, um, their worldview is not a neutral worldview, nor is a fully functional worldview. The scripture says unbelievers hate God. So they would receive all the evidence and interpret it based on their pre-existing beliefs. Which, by the way, we all do. Whenever we receive evidence, we, we analyze it according to our worldview. And we certainly don't want to elevate an unbeliever to the seat of a judge. As a matter of fact, if you look at Paul's uh, presentation, he does exactly the opposite. He does the exact opposite. The unbeliever is not the judge nor the jury. But Paul says in verse 31 that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So Paul didn't employ any argument to prove the existence of God. He didn't use the cosmological argument. He didn't use the, the theological argument. And I'll let you look these arguments up. Um, he didn't do any of that. He didn't use, he didn't want to prove the resurrection with five uh, neat and tidy reasons. You know, proves the resurrection. You know, the, the sealed stone was moved. The Roman guards were there. The apostles were first scared and then they were bold and, uh, you know, so on. And which, by the way, 
These are good evidences. These are things that Christians can cherish and we can be encouraged in our faith. Yet Paul didn't use any of that. Didn't submit to the unbelievers a bunch of information. Like, yeah, you make the judgment. No, Paul, after respectfully exposing their ignorance, he compared it. He, then, he put right next to it the authoritative proclamation of the truth of the scriptures. He presented, with them, presented them with the God of the scriptures. And even though they were, uh, they were probably unaware of it, he uses scriptural ideas, scriptural concepts. He really relies heavily on Old Testament. Uh, for example, when he brings up the authority of the one God and creator, um, he's drawing from Isaiah, from Isaiah 42. The Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people and the spirit to those who walk in it. He virtually quotes 1 King 8.27 when he's basically, um, he's talking about the transcendence of God over against uh, the silly idea of uh, all these temples that the gods of the Athenians dwelled in. 1 King 8.27, but, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And then again, when you know, the Athenians believed that God was served by men, by men with all their, their uh, sacrifices, uh, you know, Paul alludes to, to Psalm 50, where he says, uh, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on the thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. You see, so using the scriptures, yet not even telling them, but Paul proclaims the God of the scripture, the truth of the Bible to them with authority. And lastly, he ties it all together with the last few verses. We have seen how he exposed uh, the inconsistency and ignorance of their unbelief. He proclaimed the biblical God. And in the last section, we are going to see his call to repentance. His call to repentance, verses 27 to 31. Now, what, um, one of the things that Paul mentioned in his grand presentation of the God of the Bible um, is God's dealing with men. In verse 26, verse 26 he says, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So God has created mankind to live, to dwell, to inhabit the earth. Just to put in Genesis uh, words, to be fruitful and to multiply. But that's not all. According to Paul's speech, that's not all that God did. In verse 27, he adds a striking detail. Verse 27, look at the, the first few words. That they should seek God. That they should seek God. You and I and every member of the human race has been created that they might seek God. Human beings have been created that might seek God, yet man seems to be groping in darkness. Just like a drunk, man has been going around for thousands of years groping in darkness. Now, either in Athens or Paul's day, or even in San Diego in our day, unbelieving man is still groping in darkness. Why is that? Why men can't find God? They were created to seek God. Why can't they find God? Is God hiding? Is God too far away, too far removed? Is God so far away that mankind just cannot find Him? 
that mankind is not able to find them. Not at all. Matter of fact, he's not far at all. And even as the Greek poets, the Greek poets knew this. And that's why Paul is quoting them to show that they know this. Their own poets say, in him we live and move and have our being. We are indeed his offspring, another wrote. Then why is it? Why, Paul's basically saying, why if you are his offspring, why if in him you live and move and have your being, why do you still worship the unknown? Why do you worship cattle, birds, creeping things, anything, even money, sex, fame? Why? Well, their answer is because it is culpable ignorance. It is culpable ignorance. It is a willful denial. It is an active suppression of the truth because it is a self-inflicted blindness. You see, Paul was basically telling these lofty philosophers that the God that he just proclaimed to them, the God that he has spent this, a long time um, describing to them, the Holy Creator, they know. They know this God. Their own poets reveal this intrinsic knowledge that man has. But rather, they worship gold and silver and stone and all sorts of things. Just as we read in Romans during our scripture reading. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We see Paul goes on. Paul goes on and finishes with a call to repentance. And he says, but in his long suffering, long suffering mercy, God has overlooked this culpable ignorance. God has placed it aside momentarily in his long suffering mercy and in his kindness. He hasn't given the Athenians the justice that they deserve. But now, says Paul, now, now, in virtue of the life, in virtue of the ministry of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was sent to be a sin bearer, the one who took upon himself the sins of whoever repents and believe in him, Athenians included, philosopher included, San Diegans included, you and I included. In virtue of that man, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has fixed the day they will judge the world in righteousness. So he calls them, he commands them indeed to repent, to turn away from the folly of their unbelief, to reject their, their, uh, the worldviews, their idolatry, to renounce their boastful arrogance, and just to serve the one whom he has placed a stamp of approval on through the resurrection. So brethren, if we follow the inspired Apostle Paul in our apologetics, we do well. We do well to follow the pattern that Paul lays out for us. But you know, the discipline of apologetics is not an end to itself. Apologetics, good apologetics, paves the way for the preaching of the gospel. The good apologetics paves the way for a call to repentance. It must be so. That is biblical apologetics. So to summarize, to summarize, Paul begins with respectfully exposing the inconsistency, the ignorance 
of these men in Athens and their beliefs. According to Paul, it is in Christ that are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And it is only the fool that says in his heart, there is no God. Then he proceeds to proclaim with authority the divine truth, the word of God. And the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the word of God is able to save your souls. And lastly, moved by, really motivated by love for his audience, Paul is doing this because he loves these unbelievers. Moved by love for his audience, he calls them to give up their folly and to repent. So let's briefly look at the, the results of his preaching. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again about this. But some men joined him and believed. So in closing, brothers, just like Paul, we, if we employ this apologetics, we can expect one of three responses. One of three responses. The first one, some mocked. Some mocked. The seed of the word of God finds no fertile ground. Satan comes, snatches the seed, and they leave with a dry, with a stony, with a mockful heart. It will happen. And we see this often. Some mocked. The second response, others said, we will hear you again about this. So some procrastinated. Some procrastinated. You see, the cares of life, the deceitfulness of riches uh, come and they choke up the seed and they leave, again, unchanged, untouched by the word of truth. But the third response, some men joined him and believed. Now, some believe, some have their eyes opened by the Spirit of God and believe the gospel and find, indeed, eternal life. So be encouraged that according to God's sovereignty, even though there is mockers, even though there is procrastinators, some hear and believe and find eternal life. So my last words today are for those, if there is in our midst, that are not believers in Jesus Christ. So if you are here today by the providence of God and the grace of God that led you here today, my last words are for you, and I have a sincere question for you. Which one of these three are you? Which one of these three are you? How, oh, in another way, how are you going to leave today? Are you going to leave as a mocker? Are you going to leave scorning the God in whom you live, breathe, and have your being? Are you going to leave laughing at the doctrines of eternal life? Are you going to leave a mocker? Or are you going to leave a procrastinator? Are you going to leave saying, you know... Preacher, this stuff sounds good. I think there's good stuff there. You know, one day I'll look into it. I got so much on my plate right now. I'll think about it another time. You know, I was there once. I remember hearing the preaching of the gospel and being like, one day, my Lord, I'll just, I'll pay attention to these things. One day, God, I'll turn, but not now. It's too early. Are you going to leave as a procrastinator? Or are you going to leave a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you, are you going to acknowledge the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and your vileness? Are you going to acknowledge that God is truth, and you are a liar? Are you going to abandon a, 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 a series of, uh, a, a worldview, a system of folly and unbelief, and are you going to submit your life and your mind to the lordship of Jesus Christ? 
You see, out of these three possibilities, only one leads to eternal life. And I don't think that you are ignorant to which one it is. You are not ignorant to which one it is. So God commands you to repent. But I today beg you to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this gospel is a gospel of salvation. We thank you that Jesus Christ is the suitable Savior for all. Lord, we ask that now we would be encouraged to defend the faith, to proclaim the truth of your Bible. Lord, that we will be those who are bearers of good news. And Lord, that you will be pleased to save a people for yourself. May the Lord Jesus Christ be glorified. We thank you in his name. Amen.